0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. I wonder sometimes how a given program will sound, say, 10 years in the future. I have a partial answer to this because we've been doing this for, I don't know, pushing 20 years at this point. So it is possible to go back and listen to something from 10, 15, 18 years ago. I think it's fair to say from direct personal experience that I, I think quite a bit of it holds up pretty well. But that was before the Trump era. When I listen to some of the stuff that we have sort of by default fallen into in the last couple of years, I, I just I just hope that A decade from now, we'll be listening back and saying, well, thank God we got through that era, and thank God a lot of that stuff's not relevant anymore. I guess that's the best we can hope for, because looking around at some of the things that are on page one of late, well, I've harkened back to a time many years ago, many decades ago at this point, when I was a medical student, as I recall back to the Reagan era, when I was a young physician-in-training in in Southern California, uh, one, one case that I came across sticks out in my mind relevant to what's going on today. This case involved a patient who was suffering from hypervitaminosis A. This is not a common condition. It's quite a rare condition, I'd like to think, and it is entirely dependent upon the, well, I guess you'd say misbehavior of the patient, or not not misbehavior, misguided behavior of the patient. In this instance, the patient, for reasons that I don't think we ever got to the bottom of, was convinced somewhere along the way that what she needed to improve her status in life was to take large quantities of vitamin A. It is often said that you know if you if you're a person that pops a lot of vitamins, what you're doing mainly is creating expensive vitamin enriched urine and sadly there there's a great deal of truth to that. I don't want to bag on vitamins in today's program, but I think I'm going to follow the lead of Dr. Dina Dell, whose family made its fortune such as they were in the vitamin business. Dr. Dina Dell used to say that if he thought about it well, he he might take a vitamin but they were certainly not the miracle pills that <laughs> that they are touted to be, possibly by his family in earlier days. So suffice it to say that if you take a daily vitamin, it's, that's just fine. Like, to, like Dr. Adele, sometimes if I think about it, I, I might take one. But there is one slight disclaimer to this idea of how all you're doing is creating vitamin-enriched urine. The fact of the matter is that is true for the water-soluble vitamins. You take one, it enters your bloodstream, it goes throughout your body. It's it's basically in the solution because it likes being in water and therefore it can pass through your kidneys and out of your body into the toilet and on its way to the sewage treatment plant. Well, that's the case of the B vitamins, vitamin C, etc., most of them. Most of them, but not vitamins A, D, E, or K. These are what are known as the fat-soluble vitamins. Yes, your body certainly knows how to process them. It it relies upon them for our metabolism. It moves them around in a handy fashion, but it doesn't just put them into solution. So, if you, as this patient once did, get into your head that you need large doses of vitamin A, your body will not relieve itself by putting it into the toilet bowl. It requires processing. Your liver's got to get involved. A lot of cellular mechanisms need to get involved. And if you have quite an overabundance of this substance, your, your body has trouble processing it. So much so that if you do embark upon taking massive doses of it, well, your liver's going to object. And to make a long story short, you're going to get sick. And you might get really sick. You might be sick enough to be in the hospital. You might be sick enough to be in the hospital where when the doctors come by on rounds and take a look at you, they wonder if you're going to make it. That certainly was the case when we did our morning round. That certainly was the case when we did come upon this patient on our morning rounds and discuss the odd predicament that she was in. Now, you'd think that if you sat down and explained to somebody that they were literally killing themselves from taking too much vitamin A, that you would have some hope that they would pay attention to what you were saying and think, oh, well, maybe I should cut back. I know that's what I hoped, and I know that's what a lot of us hoped, but, you know, our hopes were dashed. This patient could not wait to improve well enough to get out of the hospital because, in her mind, what was making her sick was the fact that she did not have enough vitamin A. So what do you think happened when she got well enough to leave the hospital the first time? If your guess is that she went out and took even more massive doses of this now toxic substance, well, go to the head of the class. I think in this sad tale, she cycled through several episodes of this, uh, you know, getting better when she was in the hospital and didn't have access to her vitamins, and then getting loose to go out and take care of her own health and then driving it into a brick wall at a high rate of speed yet again. And um, I'm further saddened to report that, as I recall, this eventually proved fatal to the patient. She killed herself with too much vitamin A. Now, the whole thing started out, no doubt, with this idea that vitamin supplementation might be a good thing. And as far as that goes, up to a point, that's probably true. Vitamins were discovered because when people lacked them in their diet, they would have health problems. On the flip side of that, if you eat a balanced diet, you are not likely to have vitamin deficiencies, period, end of story. Oh, you might have trouble with some vitamins if, say, you're a vegan and you're, you know, not quite getting enough vitamin B12, which generally comes to us through animal sources. When I say animal sources, that includes milk and eggs, etc., but today's show is not a show about nutrition or vitamins. But it is a start to today's program based on the idea that what seems like a pretty reasonable idea at first can go sideways. Furthermore, if it has gone sideways and your solution to the problem is to heap on more of what put you sideways in the first place, well, it just might not pan out. And this, dear listener, brings me around to the current story of Donald J. Trump, a man who, by any reasonable standards, should not be anywhere near the Oval Office, but who, in fact, is the President of the United States. My parallel today for hypervitaminosis A, something that can kill you if you're not careful, would be the misapplication of social media. It started out as a novel idea, something that would bring us together, something that would make us smarter, something that would leave us just more connected, and in doing so bring us many benefits that just, well, they seem inherent with us being better connected, you know? But it seems quite clear at this point, it's not working out the way we'd hoped. It does seem, no matter what your take may be on Russia Gate, it seems clear enough that social media played a role in the election of Donald Trump, as it has played a role in the segregating of society into armed camps. And some of those camps are literally armed. If you go out to dinner, you will notice there's been a change over the past couple of decades. Out in a restaurant 20 years ago, people sitting at a table would be talking to one another. Go out to a restaurant these days and you're liable to see six people staring down at the phone in their hand, all of them ignoring one another. Now, surely not everybody's on social media, but I think a fairly high percentage of the time people do spend on the web is involved in Facebook and the miscellaneous other ways people use to communicate with one another, if communicate is the right word. Not to spend too much time thrashing over this, but it is clear that some bad things happened in 2016 that were favorable to the election of Donald Trump. I'll just leave it at that. Some may argue with that, but I think that's a pretty basic statement, which can be extremely well supported. Now, when it turned out that (laughs) those of us who were on Facebook taking personality tests didn't realize that... Those personality tests would further bolster the dossiers that Google and Facebook and the tech companies are building on all of us for commercial purposes. We didn't realize that they would find a a backdoor from which to obtain data on all of our friends. And by knowing who our friends were and, and what we thought about things, they were able to make some pretty good guesses about how to pitch stuff to us. This is a large part of the business model upon which all of these companies rely and they want to get really good at it. And they want to sell information about you and me to advertisers and worse. Worse being political factions. Political factions that want to run the government. They want to run the government by getting you to vote their people in. Suffice it to say, they're pretty good at this. And in the wake of the Cambridge Analytica scandal... Good old Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook, at first scoffed at the idea that there was any problem here at all. When the evidence continued to mount that there was, well, they spent a lot of money hiring more lobbyists and spent a lot of more money hiring PR firms and even sent Mr. Zuckerberg off to Washington to attempt to put oil on the roiled waters in his rather inarticulate, geeky style style. But it seems clear as we go along that the corporate culture at Facebook and elsewhere is not really changing. And as it has now become revealed that the Trump organization, which is apparently flush with cash, is spending a lot of dough on Facebook, well, eyebrows are being raised. At this point, I think I should jump into the article by Matthew Rosenberg and Kevin Ruse that appeared in the New York Times earlier this week. On any given day, President Donald Trump's campaign is plastering ads all over Facebook, YouTube, and the millions of sites served by Google, hitting the kind of incendiary themes – immigrant invaders, the corrupt media – that play best on platforms where algorithms favor outrage and political campaigns are free to disregard facts. Even seemingly ominous developments for Trump become fodder for his campaign – When news broke last month that Congressional Democrats were opening an impeachment inquiry, the campaign responded with an advertising blitz aimed at firing up his base. The campaign slapped together an impeachment poll. Sample question. Do you agree that President Trump has done nothing wrong? It invited supporters to join the official impeachment defense task force. It produced slick videos laying out the debunked conspiracy theory about former Vice President Joe Biden and Ukraine that is now at the center of the impeachment battle. Learn the truth. Watch now, say the ads. The onslaught overwhelmed the limited Democratic response. Biden's campaign put up the stiffest resistance. It demanded Facebook take down the ad only to be rebuffed. It then proceeded to (laughs) plans to slash online advertising budget in favor of more television ads. Isn't that just like the Democrats to come up with that as a solution? Oh, we're getting our asses kicked on social media? Well, well, we'll just, we'll just spend more money on TV ads. The piece goes on. The Trump campaign has put its digital operation firmly at the center of the president's reelection effort. Democrats are struggling to internalize the lessons of the 2016 race and adapt to a political landscape shaped by social media. Trump's first campaign took far better advantage of Facebook and other platforms that reward narrowly targeted and arguably nastier messages. And while he is now embattled on multiple fronts and disfavored by a majority of Americans in most polls, he has one big advantage. His 2020 campaign, flush with cash, is poised to dominate online again, according to experts. The Trump team has spent the last three years building out its web operation— The 2016 Digital Director, Brad Pascali, is now leading the entire campaign. If you're not alarmed by this, dear listener, I I think you should be. And I would like to quote now from the viewpoint presented in the Sacramento Bee. Actually, it's a reprint from an editorial from the Miami Herald, which I think is worth hearing from. Note to the editors down at the Miami Herald, Facebook long has had a policy on misleading ads. In the words of company product management director Rob Litherin, misleading or deceptive ads have no place on Facebook, noted the Herald. Apparently, that simple declarative statement needed a huge asterisk, as Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden find out when he tried to get Facebook to pull a misleading ad run by the Trump campaign. The policy doesn't apply to political ads. The ad Biden wanted pulled, part of President Donald Trump's shady efforts to embroil Biden in a controversy over the former VP's work with a Ukrainian gas company, clearly falls into that category. Both factcheck.org and Pontifact found the ad deceptive. But Facebook decided that it will treat ads from politicians as, quote, newsworthy content, unquote, letting them stand regardless of how misleading they are because the public interest supposedly outweighs the harm of the disinformation. Facebook figures every reader who sees a political ad will have the time and inclination to verify every claim in it is true. The reality, of course, is that such individually obsessive review is impossible. That's why we have journalists and other fact-checkers. Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg doubled down last week in a Georgetown University address, claiming that the social network stands for free expression. He echoed comments he had made after a controversial series of secretive meetings with conservatives, by saying, quote, "The long journey towards greater progress requires confronting ideas that challenge us." Unquote. Remember what I was saying about being inarticulate and geeky. Well, there's an example. Note to the Herald: challenging ideas that engender intelligent discourse are great. Deliberate falsehoods, not so much. Zuckerberg's answer seems like nothing more than a ginned-up justification for Facebook to rake in millions of dollars by delivering misinformation that erodes informed democratic debate. At Georgetown, Zuckerberg spoke high-mindedly about how Facebook has handed people, quote, the power to express themselves at scale, unquote, creating a, quote, new force in the world, unquote. But he did not acknowledge how that force was abused to communicate a misinformation campaign designed by a foreign power to interfere in the 2016 election. Did he learn nothing? The Herald goes on. Creating a forum for free speech is a noble goal, but that forum needn't and shouldn't also be a place for deliberate misinformation and undermining the very democracy Zuckerberg claims to want to uphold. Political speech needs heightened protection, but not when it contains outright lies. Continuing later in the piece, it is almost as if Zuckerberg fears that the talk about Facebook's assumed liberal bias might convince Trump's politically compromised Department of Justice to bring some sort of antitrust action against the company. So he's doing all sorts of conservative outreach, including doing Trump a favor and refusing to take down a clearly false ad to allay such fears. Or maybe Zuckerberg is acting on his belief that Elizabeth Warren is an existential threat to Facebook and is using his enormous power to tilt the field in Trump's favor. They conclude with this, whatever the reason, if users can't trust Facebook to do even the least bit of content moderation when it comes to political ads, there just might be something valid in the hashtag delete Facebook trend. I think this pretty much does it for me. I, 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 am on Facebook and I need to get myself off of it in the near future. And you know, you might want to consider taking similar steps yourself, my dear listener. Oh, I just stumbled on the fact that Facebook is pledging $1 billion to ease the housing crisis which has been basically created by big tech in the Bay Area. Oh, I'm sure that's going to fix it. But to circle back to this whole thing about hypervitaminosis A, if something that's killing you is the problem, The odds are more of that same thing is not going to be the solution. When we learned that social media, in this case Facebook, was causing significant political problems in the United States, which I think is a very fair statement, then it was pretty obvious to Radio Parallax that the solution would not come from more social media. Particularly one that was not reformed. To our view, it was just like going home and taking lots more vitamin A. And here's an interesting political development. It turns out that the anonymous senior Trump administration official, whose 2018 New York Times op ed was called Treasonous by President Donald, has written a new book about Trump titled A Warning. It will be published next month. The book apparently has been a closely guarded secret. It will be released on November 19th by 12, a division of the Hatchet Book Group. The author, is going to remain anonymous, they say, and sources familiar with the book told CNN that elaborate precautions have been taken to protect the author's identity. They've apparently verified that the author is the same person who penned the Times op-ed piece titled, I am part of the resistance inside the Trump administration on September 5th of last year. A draft press release from the publisher obtained by CNN described the book as picking up From where those first words of warning left off, this explosive book offers a shocking first-hand account of President Trump and his record. Supposedly, the author of A Warning has refused the chance at a seven-figure advance and intends to donate a substantial amount of any royalties to the White House Correspondents Association and other organizations that fight for a free press that seeks the truth. Asked if the author remained part of the Trump administration, the spokesman declined to comment further, and a spokesman for the publisher did not respond to a request for a comment. The author's clear intention is to convince the nation not to re-elect Trump in 2020. One of the sources familiar with the book told CNN that it is intended for two audiences, the country in general, of course, and Trump voters, at least the persuadable ones. The hope is the book will get into the hands of those who are persuadables. The Times op-ed from September 2018 described a president the author viewed as amoral, opposed to many conservative values, such as freedom, and, quote, impetuous, adversarial, petty, and ineffective, unquote. The author wrote that many of the senior officials in his own administration are working diligently from within to frustrate parts of his agenda and his worst inclinations. Holy deep throat, CNN notes that whether the book or its author will end up playing a role in the Trump impeachment inquiry is unclear. The Trump presidency currently faces an existential threat from another anonymous whistleblower, albeit one who went through more established protocols by filing an official complaint. A source close to the book told CNN that its publication is an unprecedented act during a president's term and was not decided on lightly. I gotta say, looking back on the entire scope of American history, it's... it's, hard to find many parallels. I mean, Deep Throat comes to mind, but this is this is off the charts. Anyway, I've blown through most of the segment talking about this, but I think it's a worthy topic. I do vow to bring back my very own high school history teacher, Mark Mattingly, onto this program to discuss what I'm f- finding to be a very strange disconnect b- between the reporting on impeachment and my understanding of the process at least the process as it applied in eight, in the 1860s to president andrew johnson the first us president to face impeachment there's a lot of interest of course in historical precedents of impeachment two presidents have been impeached andrew johnson and bill clinton in both of those cases a group of i guess you'd have to call them radical republicans that was actually their more or less official name back in the 1860s but i think it also applies to the 1990s, went after a president they didn't like. Richard Nixon would have been impeached if he had not resigned first. Oh, and by the way, being impeached doesn't mean you're removed from office. Johnson wasn't, Clinton wasn't, and perhaps Nixon wouldn't have been either. Regarding Bill Clinton's impeachment, all I want to do is quote from Arnold Schwarzenegger, who said when that was going on, he was embarrassed to be a Republican. We give him credit for that acknowledgement, and he certainly should have been. But what's being said about Andrew Johnson, I find puzzling. His impeachment was somewhat something of a power struggle between the presidency and the Republicans who were in firm control of the U.S. Senate. In a summary of these events, the Associated Press made out Johnson to be a racist whom the Republicans were trying to go around to do the right thing in dealing with the South. We'll probably have a chance to go over some of, of these views in the future, but. I just want to close by noting that this is not the viewpoint presented by Senator John F. Kennedy in his book Profiles in Courage. That famous book, which earned Kennedy the Pulitzer Prize, provided examples of U.S. senators who did the right thing in spite of fierce political opposition to have them do otherwise. I think we will do well in the weeks to come to hearken back to Kennedy's chapter six in that book concerning Senator Edmund G. Ross, the man whose vote prevented Andrew Johnson from being removed from the presidency. Kennedy hailed Ross as a man deserving of recognition for his courage and for doing the right thing. But alas, we're out of time for this segment, so let's take a short break. We urge you, dear listener, to yourself, do the right thing and stick around for segment two. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Don't go away. (laughs) Superman.